Welcome to episode 83. A while back, I was at a Physiotherapy Association conference and someone in the audience stood up to ask the speaker a question. She introduced herself as a researcher interested in patient perspective and patient experience when it comes to physiotherapy. I made sure to catch her at the break because I wanted to hear more about her work and how we could discuss it on the podcast. Sarah Lord Ferguson is a clinician researcher from Vancouver, Canada, who's inspired by the problems that physiotherapists and other healthcare providers face. She has a special interest in patient psychology and expectations of healthcare services, and I believe we're lucky to have her coming at this from both angles. In this episode today, Sarah and I talk about some of the key concepts that emerge from her work. Current trends in physiotherapy, physiotherapy as a business, expectations that patients may have of their physiotherapist. Patients are not a blank slate when they come into an appointment. The importance of meeting patients where they're at. Blending evidence-based care with what our clients may be asking for or expecting and how patients can find the right physiotherapist for their needs. I think all too often we get stuck in the weeds and don't always zoom out to look at the big picture. I thoroughly enjoyed zooming out in this episode. I'll be right back with Sarah Lord Ferguson. Before we get going, I know many of you listeners are also physiotherapists because you have reached out, curious about recommendations for pelvic health courses. So I want to take time to ensure you know about the Cheerful Academy created by two highly skilled and experienced physiotherapists. Anakin Chadwick and Trish Gibson have teamed up to offer an online training and mentorship platform for physios looking to feel more capable and confident in their practice. Their signature offering is the Pelvic Health Fundamentals course. It's designed for physios who have taken the internal courses, but feel they have some gaps in their knowledge or tend to feel stuck with how to apply what they've learned once they get into the treatment room. The course is designed not to overwhelm you with information, but rather to help you get clear and make your next day in clinic easier. So if you're looking to build your clinical competence and confidence in pelvic health, then this is something I would recommend. The next cohort kicks off in January 2024. Follow the link in the show notes to take advantage of $150 off before December 15th. All right, Sarah Lord Ferguson, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We had to put it off a few times just because of scheduling issues. But I want to just really quickly before I get you to introduce yourself, I'm going to tell everybody how I met you in the first place. We were at a professional association conference this last April, and I actually don't remember what was going on, but you stood up and introduced yourself to ask a question. I don't remember how you introduced yourself, Sarah, but it had something to do with, I do research in the area of patient voice or patient advocacy or something like that. And I remember thinking, ooh, that would be an interesting topic on the podcast. And so I caught you at the kind of coffee break and thought, hey, can I, can we chat sometime after this? So that's how this all started. And then please do take some time to introduce yourself so that you can let everybody know a little bit about who Sarah is. Great. Thanks, Melissa. Uh, love to hear that intro. <laughs> um, I I did stand up at that uh, conference and I actually used the term patient experience for my research, which is a very, very broad category, really, when you think about it. Uh, because actually, I marry 
business with physiotherapy. And I am a clinician researcher, but I study marketing, patient experience, and really psychology when you think about it. And I took a very untraditional path to get here after I uh, finished my physiotherapy degree. I worked for a while full-time in private practice, and then I thought I wanted to open my own clinic. And, and so I got some additional training. I got my master's in business or my MBA, and I was shoulder tapped to do my PhD. And so here I am um, towards the end of my PhD, been continuing to work clinically part-time. Uh, I do wear those uh, many different hats. I, I'm also an instructor and I'm a board member with my local association here, uh, Physiotherapy Association of British Columbia. And uh, so all these different things really uh, impact my research, which is that broad umbrella of uh, patient experience. And I'll be finishing up my PhD uh, this coming year. I think we're lucky to have you in our profession because I listen to you and I think, oh, we're going to get so much from everything that you learn along the way. Can you say then, because we've had some conversations around some of the research that you're doing, and can you just set the stage by talking about why did you choose this area and maybe just talk about some of the things that you've been looking at in your research so we can set the stage for our discussion? Yeah, definitely. So when I agreed to do my, my PhD in business, I basically said that if I'm going to do this, it's going to be on physiotherapy. And a lot of people think, oh, physiotherapy, that's not business. But actually, it it is. Um, as a clinician, you, uh, well, particularly in private practice, you are managing a, a business, you're managing a personal brand. Uh, people come to see you, you're managing, uh, you know, things like accounts receivable and things like that. Uh, you're, you're managing an image. And so when a pa if a patient's going to come back, they, they want to have a positive experience. And when it comes to the things that I research, there's this whole context <laughs> that is involved with that, right? So uh, pain relief, everybody's got some sort of pain or has experienced pain, you know, one in five people have chronic pain. And uh, there's a lot of different choices in terms of ways to really relieve that pain and not just physiotherapy. So a lot of people don't realize that physiotherapists compete with products, as well as other practitioners. Uh, so other physiotherapists, chiropractors, massage therapists, uh, all these people can work together, but they can also compete directly with each other. You also compete with things like Advil and opioids, actually. Uh, you compete with uh, like Voltaren. And, and again, like these things can all come together, but they're also part of this complex web of choices that uh, patients who are healthcare consumers have to navigate and navigating that can be very tricky, especially with all the kind of political economic uh, factors that surround us, uh, particularly since COVID and increasing costs. And so there's a lot of complexity around what I study. And it's interesting because one of the one of the projects I know that you're working on right now, like the title of your paper, should we give patients what they want? 
patient expectations and financial pressures need to be addressed to increase uptake of evidence-based practice. So when I listen to you describe like that, that we as physiotherapists need to compete, I can see, I look at this title and I'm like, oh, that's interesting title because I know that there are a lot of things that fit into that and, you know, between patient expectations and how we need to run a business. And so can you talk a little bit about where you are with this research right now? Because um, this is not published yet, right? Yeah, I mean, so that paper is a viewpoint paper uh, that that basically came out of my frustration with uh, clinicians fighting with each other and also researchers telling us, why can't you just do this? This is what all the evidence says. And I think that when you're in the actual clinical practice and you're trying to make decisions on a minute to minute basis or, you know, day to day basis to try and make the patient in front of you happy. And there's a lot going on there. It's not as easy as just, oh, just follow, just follow the evidence. Oh, it's so easy. Like, why can't you just do it? Why are you having such a hard time with it? So, I mean, that's where that particular paper came out of was just like it's so much more complex than just just do what it says because the reality is that it's hard to make a living now in in a much different way than it was even five or 10 20 years ago it's just everything is more expensive there's more competition between physiotherapy clinics as well as just in terms of the availability of substitutes for what we do and the increasing financial pressures. So what happens is you have a clinician that needs to pay their rent and you know provide for their family and they can't afford to not have a full caseload or not have patients coming back. They can't afford to have a bad online review. And so you have these two competing pressures that that can work against each other. They don't have to work against each other, but particularly as a novice clinician or a clinician that has not had extensive training in uh, patient expectation management and behavior change and and all these other things, it, it can become very, very, very difficult to maintain a caseload. So that's what that's about. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting. And like I said, I'm very thankful that you're doing this. And a lot of people will be very thankful that you're doing it. Can you talk, cause you've talked a little, one of the things I wanted to ask you about like current trends in physiotherapy practice, which is what you kind of just alluded to, like different financial strains, um, length of time in the appointment. I want you to talk a little bit about, because, uh, this is something that I'm noticing people are talking a lot about how long are your appointment times? How long are your appointment times? Mm-hmm. Um, will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, from a financial standpoint, the shorter the appointment times, the more money you could potentially squeeze out, uh, which is not necessarily a trend we're seeing. We're seeing a trend where uh, clinics are increasing the appointment times and then charging more, but that there's a ceiling to that, right? And you know, patients are demanding more time for less money and clinic expenses are going up. Uh, and so it becomes, if it comes very challenging to manage that, uh, another, another underexplored way that we could increase the time that we give to our patients is by using things like telehealth, uh, or, you know, doing more check-ins with our patients in other ways. 
of course, then it becomes a, a fun, another kind of regulatory uh, issue, maybe not regulatory issue, but getting the funding for that, right? Getting the funding for a text message check-in, getting a, getting the funding for this and that can be, can be pretty tricky. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's a big tangent. I think, I think one of the issues is just when it, when it comes to appointment length is, is just making ends meet in terms of having the, the right length of time to get enough done and to be compensated fairly, right? And, and that's challenging. And particularly, I mean, if you're a specialty clinic where that managing that becomes even more tricky, right? Yeah, I definitely am finding that just with the, I would say kind of the pinch of the healthcare system right now. And in my community, there's a GP shortage. Um, people are having a hard time getting appointments with different practitioners. So they have maybe more questions that they yeah. think might be related to a physiotherapist, whereas maybe before they wouldn't have asked. And so I am finding, you know, in, in a you know, I do all 45s that those are tight. I'm constantly going over and I, I kind of kick myself for not having great time management, but I just, I was like, these people need help. So it yeah. just, it, it's, it's definitely a juggle. And can you talk a little bit about to, uh, about, you know, some of your points around client expectations. So, you know, that is, that is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to you to tie in now some of the findings from some of the work that you've done. I know that you talk mm -hmm. a lot about client expectations and things you've learned and discovered along the way about maybe, maybe some of those people that are walking into the door and, and the expectations they have. Yeah. Well, I think just to come back to your other point that we just have, there's so much more complexity that we're dealing with now on so many levels right? Like on the societal level, on the business level, like those different contexts that we just described, but now we're kind of bringing it down to the, the client or the patient level and they're coming in they have many more questions. They have so much more going on. Chronic pain is more of an issue than it ever has been. And like you said, there's all those stressors on the healthcare system, which means that they're not getting dealt with in through other channels. And so when it comes to expectations, like the the patient has so much many more expectations than they used to have just by nature of the complexity of their condition you know I jump up for joy when an ankle sprain comes into the clinic like just a kind of traditional basic first time ankle sprain like they are playing soccer or whatever and I'm just like oh my god yes you know it's a very kind of clear usually clear to define problem clear mechanism of injury traumatic situation, boom, 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 boom. And I know that people, everyone likes to say, okay, well, yes, there's the biopsychosocial model. And even in an ankle sprain, even in a traditional ankle sprain, yes, there's those uh, social and um, psychological factors, which I 100% agree. But when you compare basic first-time ankle sprain, uh, traumatic soccer-type incident to the complexity of a chronic pain patient, insidious onset, so much going on, ebbs and flows, seeing multiple different practitioners, so much going on. And then they sit down in front of you and they're like, you need to be the one that solves all my problems. I, It's just like the amount of time you need for those two different patients is completely different. And I mean, I, I don't own a clinic, but maybe there needs to be better um, triaging in terms of that. 
uh, or, you know, we do have kind of specialty clinics that deal, deal with chronic pain, but the reality is just that the complexity of, of cases that I see, and I'm sure you've witnessed this trend as well, that over those, over the years, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's not just kind of basic traumatic injuries anymore. It's, it's complex, complex stuff, mm-hmm. which, which really impacts expectations as well. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Especially in the area of pelvic health. And I, I keep, I keep saying, I feel like I need a counseling degree. Uh, you yeah. know, just, I, I really do because there's, there's heavy psychosocial involvement in anything to do with pelvic health. And um, I'm grateful for a lot of that training, but I still feel like, oh, this is beyond my scope of practice a lot of times. And it's just, I, I know other, other disciplines are, are experiencing a lot of this as well too. Um, I'm trying not to make it sound like I'm switching avenues here, but I'm still kind of wanting to talk about some of the things that you've been finding in your work related to patient expectations and, and, and on the line of pain here right now. Right. So just talking a little bit about, um, some of the things that you found and I, I guess what I'm trying to marry is we as physiotherapists are learning a lot about, you know, different things in evidence-based practice, the benefits of telehealth, um, you know, the biopsychosocial um, aspects of treatment and being able to talk with people, behavior change. However, I think a lot of the things that you have found are still, you know, the client appreciation of things like laying your hands on me, um, finding the pain. Um, Will you talk a little bit about some of those findings when it comes to what's important to clients when it comes to pain? For sure. Uh, So one of my research projects is is looking at the meanings that patients ascribe to pain during physiotherapy treatment. Uh, So assessment, including treatment and uh, assessment. So um, what I mean by that is it's not the pain that people walk in the door with, and it's not the pain that they leave with or experience after it's while they're actually seeing the physiotherapist how do patients make sense and ascribe meaning to pain and two themes are coming out of that uh, research uh, which is really that patients have different expectations associated with pain during assessment and treatment so these kind of two parts of the overall experience that they have with a physiotherapist or a session or a visit. And so when it comes to the assessment, just the the things that you you said, Melissa, right? Like the pain is actually when the therapist touches the patient's pain, it's very validating for them and it, it makes them feel heard. And we've probably all heard this many times in our clinic, but patients say something like, oh my gosh, you found the spot. How how did you do that? You're incredible. You're amazing. Wow. And it's kind of funny because from like a clinician standpoint, you're like, well, everybody has some sort of trigger point in their upper traps. Right. And it might not make sense from like a scientific standpoint, but it's so meaningful to the patient. It's, it, you know, because pain for so many people is invisible, especially in, in the 
the, the increasing, the more complex, the more non-traumatic, the more chronic, the less it's visible, right? Uh, as a general trend, as opposed to something that's swollen and bruised and, and very acute, right? So, so I mean, do you want to unpack that? Do you want me to unpack that more? Well, I think, I think basically what I want, what, what the point I'm trying to make here is you listen to that and how important and validating that is. And I think most people listening will understand whether they're a patient or a clinician, how powerful that is. I think you build trust with the client. I think you build a bit mm -hmm. of a therapeutic alliance. I found the right person. Um, and I think sometimes these people come in with an expectation maybe of, of what you're going to do with that pain. But I mean, the whole point of this podcast discussion, I'm going back to the title of your dissertation or, where, um, patient expectations, um, do we give patients what they want? Because the evidence-based guidelines right now are saying we need to start with pain education or, mm -hmm. you know, like start a little bit more with the education, um, behavior change, but, they're coming in thinking, no, like, aren't you going to do, aren't you going to rub it out or aren't you going to you yeah. know, use a modality or IMS? That's what the last person did. And this is what my friend told me to do. And I'm just trying to think out loud of some of the things we're talking about. And yeah. if you don't meet them where they're at, are they going to go somewhere else? And if you're, if you're having a hard time building your caseload, cause there's lots of physios in the community, I guess I'm just trying to tie all this together, together, Sarah, cause I think this is why you do your research, but, yeah. um, I guess, will you kind of weigh in on all of that? And um, it's a lot. Yeah. I just said, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're exactly right. Like those are all those factors that are, that are all coming together to influence whether or not the physio does that or not. Right. And, you know, if you do a really good subjective history and you, you know, you do all the education things and you have all the tools and you, you, <laughs> I don't know, this might be a, this might be a discussion point, but you maybe don't even need to do a hands-on assessment, right? I mean, telehealth has, has been shown to, you know, preliminarily to work quite well. And, you know, maybe we don't need to use our hands. And I'm actually a huge proponent of telehealth, to be honest, because it removes the temptation to use your hands. But what I'm finding in my research is kind of the exact opposite, which is really, really challenging, especially when I have the bias towards being hands off. So if I have the bias to being hands off and, and I'm the research is actually saying what I'm finding is saying the opposite, we need to be hands on. How do you make sense of that? And, and it really comes down to what we're talking about patient expectations is patient have patients have these expectations that they've created you know some of our patients are later in life they've been creating these expectations and solidifying these expectations for 70 years about what health what healthcare is and what healthcare practitioners do and that they are going to fix you and so it's very hard to change those deeply entrenched belief systems and so the real kind of challenge as a, especially a private practice healthcare practitioner trying to make a living is meeting the patient kind of where they're at to some extent. Uh, we, a, a term that has come out of my research has been called physio candy. And uh, when we were talking about this before, I said, I'm not going to bring this up because I don't want to confuse <laughs> anybody. But uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's kind of a terminal, a ter 
a terminology that came out of it in the sense that you kind of give the patient a little bit of something that they want. And then that helps to build that therapeutic alliance. It helps to build the trust with them. It helps them to rebook multiple visits. And then as you develop that, you steer them towards a different viewpoint. And it's this idea that patients don't come into you as blank slates. Many of them, you you really, it's hard to change those belief systems. Uh, and, and maybe you don't need to use that approach with everybody. For example, like with, when I have young people, if they've never come to physio before, it's a lot easier because they don't have those expectations based on past physios that they've visited for the last 35 years. So you can start with a totally different approach. But if somebody has been seeing physio for a long time and they have a certain expectation of physio and you do a completely different approach and you don't do it the right way and you're not very careful and you don't have all those very specific skill sets around counseling and change and all these things, it can be a dumpster fire. And I've been told that by many clinicians, myself included, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I think, I think for, for those of us that, you know, try to keep up with the, the evidence-based guidelines, sometimes it's hard to marry those with where it takes a long time for real life to keep up to speed with what the evidence is suggesting. And I think, you know, those of us that are trying to deliver that sometimes have that difficult time, given all these other pressures that you're talking about. And so I think, you know, kind of, you know, some of the things I think we take from this, you mentioned, I think just keeping in mind that patients aren't blank slates and yeah, they come in with either previous experiences or beliefs or a certain idea, meeting them where you're at, you're talked to, you talked about, um, and I'm going to have a whole nother conversation with someone about just the meaning of pain with, you know, because there's so many things that are tied into that for people. Yeah. Um, and I think just, I, I, what do you think of this saying? Um, I heard this saying and I thought it sounds strong, but I think it's kind of what you're saying. Give people a bit of what they want and a lot of what they need. Right. I think that's mm. kind of, that's kind of the same as meeting them where they're at and then sprinkling in the evidence. Right. And some people come to us that are very up on the evidence. They're very interested yes. in learning and they come in saying, Oh, this is what I want. And other people, like you said, you're just kind of far down that spectrum from, from maybe what they there's a lot of social media information right now and not yeah. most of it is not evidence-based. So some people are doing a ton of their own quote unquote research and then they come in and you're thought, Oh shoot, how do I meet this person where they're at? I'm a bit far away from them in my thinking right now. I want to keep them as a client. I need to keep yeah. them as a client, but you know, sometimes you have to do some quick thinking there in the moment, right? About where do I start here? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to summarize that, this is basically you need to you need to understand where the patient's at. And every patient is going to be at a different in a different like expectate have different expectations, right? You can't just treat every single patient the same. You're not going to do well. Uh, and you need some way to assess those belief systems. So you need to say, you know, have you, and hopefully most people are doing this, right? Have you been to physiotherapy before? What health practitioners have you seen? What did they do? What did they, what did you like about it? What did you, what did you not like about it? Why? 
uh, and, and like, what expectations do you have of me today? And like, then, you know, circling back and saying, you know, did I meet your expectations? Or do you have any other questions or concerns? Or like making sure that these things are assessed so that you can understand where they're at. You can't just assume where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things you said um, with me when we were just talking about this episode initially, and I might not quote you exactly right, but what's in the clinical guideline isn't necessarily what the patient needs. And I think that you kind of alluded to that early on in this discussion where it's, it's hurt your brain a little bit. You know, you're a researcher, <laughs> you like the clinical practice guidelines, and then all of a sudden, oh, shoot, it's hard to apply those sometimes. So will you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think like we all have you know, good intentions. That's why we went into this profession. We care about our patients. We, we want them to do well. We want to give them the best tools that we have to get better. And we have a lot of different tools in our toolkit. And we have a lot of people in our profession, you know, trying to get our ear and, and yelling at us that this is the best way. And you just really need to a lot of power is placed on you as a clinician to pick the right tools and you can't just pick the same tool for the same person and and one tool is not necessarily better and it's trying to find that mix of tools that makes the most sense for that person presenting to you that day and that tool might change i mean you know so much it's so much of what we do is an art in addition to a science right? Like bedside manner, for example, <laughs> like just your personality. I mean, there's placebo effects. There's, there's a lot going on in a physiotherapy visit. And we're not like acupuncturists where they just do acupuncture or massage therapists. You know, they're just treating. Of course, even those professions have uh, a range of scope, but but our scope is just so broad, right? Yes. And I mean, we're mostly talking just about orthopedics right now and private practice orthopedics. Yeah, uh, it's just it, it can be hard to even tell people what we do sometimes, which which is another yeah. challenge. <laughs> yes, I had a I had a kind of a big quote design for my room. It says, uh, you know, it's by Maya Angelou, but people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I, I really truly believe that that's kind of the majority of what I do, right? And I thought too, when you were talking there about it's not the same thing for everybody, but, you know, I think sometimes we have to remember, and so do clients have to remember that, that not everybody's looking for IMS manual therapy exercise. Like at the end of the day, they're looking for us to help them come up with mm -hmm. a solution to the problem. Like it's not like at the, we, sometimes I think we narrow ourselves um, mm -hmm. and, and, and to maybe think about that, but this person's just coming in for me to help them figure it out. So, um, yeah. you know, like sometimes we assume they have preconceived notions, right? Exactly. And I mean, like, I think it's being, it's funny, being a researcher and going through all my extensive training in my PhD has made me a better clinician. And my PhD is in social sciences. It's not in, it's not in clinical sciences. It's, it's in, it's rooted in psychology and in sociology. And I've really just learned that you need to ask the right questions and I think it's really hard if we just put so much blame on the individual clinician and fight amongst ourselves in our profession, if we're just fighting and fighting with each other, 
we're not we're not doing ourselves any good right what we really need to do is is learn how to ask the right questions and develop the skill sets that we need to deal with the complex problems that we're being uh, given now, right? Especially in private practice, as you said. Yeah. And the solution's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. And I think we all just have to do what feels right to us, right? And, And we don't all have to be the same. There's also yes. going to be patients listening to this that will be listening it from, you know, a new lens as well, or listening or viewing from a new lens. Um, and I couldn't help but just try to summarize a few take homes that I thought maybe would be helpful for them to take out of this. But be prepared and thoughtful as you go into an appointment, because you are in the driver's seat. And I think a good clinician should be helping you realize that and, you know, help as a guide, you know, we are not fixers. We do not have magic hands. And so I think I'll be honest with you, the people I find um, like my favorites to work with are the ones that come in with lists. And uh, this is what I want. This is what I'm thinking. Like, I I enjoy that. I'm like, great. You've been thinking about this. Um, Mm -hmm. And and really, what do you want to get out of your session? Because um, and it's okay if your if your clinician or your therapist doesn't ask you that, share that that you have every right to share what you want to get out of an appointment um no two therapists are the same and if you don't have luck with one you're not doing a a disservice by going on to another one because each person's gonna appreciate a different type and style of therapist and I think too do you care about evidence-based practice (laughs) Because there are some clinicians that don't practice as much with evidence-based practice. And some people, I don't think some clients, um, some clients value that and some of them, something else is important to them. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. I think we have to keep people in mind too. What other things, Sarah, as you're listening to that, do you feel like you want to share with suggestions for patients listening? I think that's super helpful. I mean, like you said, if, if someone comes in knowing what they want, it's a lot easier to give it to them. That being said, I've also had uh, maybe like some horror stories around patients that came in and said, you know, like, I want this and that's all I want. And I'm not kind of flexible to, to do anything else. And uh, part of another research project that I've been doing is uh, asking patients uh, or asking, sorry, physiotherapists, what the kind of best and worst characteristics of patients are, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess. And one of them is just Mm open-mindedness, being open to try new things and to be flexible. I think that that is also helpful because it can go both ways. If the physiotherapist is too narrow and what they're thinking is the right solution, and then the patient is also too narrow, they're like, IMS is the only thing that's going to work then, you know, it, it's not going to work very well, right? Because you limit your options if you only choose one modality or one approach or one tool. Often, I think, hopefully most people listening can agree, it's a combination of things, right? I mean, that's the whole basis for the biopsychosocial model. It's just, it's not just fixing, you know, one kind of biological problem. It's it's understanding the complex full picture of what's going on. And often in order to uh, recover from injury, uh, both physically and mentally and socially and, you know, every single component, and it involves different things. So that was the long winded 
way of saying be open to to different approaches and different things be prepared and uh yeah i think understand what's important to you and my last thing i'll say one more thing is a uh, short-term versus long-term goals mm. that really is important because when it comes to you know knowing what you're going to do in that session maybe short-term pain relief even if it is only for 30 seconds or whatever is actually a goal if that person has not experienced any pain relief and their nervous system is totally amped up, any type of pain relief can be sometimes what the patient's looking for short-term. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to, I'm just totally throwing this at you. We did not talk about this before, but what do you hope that all of this work that you're doing does? Like what's your, if someone says, what's your goal out of all this, Sarah, what would you say? Well, I think one of my goals, particularly right now as an earlier researcher, is just to start these discussions. And I am so happy that people have been reading my viewpoint pieces uh, because it's one way to start getting the information out there. But, you know, it takes a long time to publish an entire study. As you know, the research process can take years when it comes to planning the project, getting the ethics approval, getting the funding, going through all these things. Uh, of course, we need that whole process because it validates what's, you know, what we're talking about. But it's also important to have conversations as the research is evolving and as it's coming out. And, you know, viewpoint papers really allow that intersection of practice and, and um and research. And, and so, you know, I've, I'm doing a couple podcasts this week, actually, which is exciting because people are interested in what, what I have to say. And I bring a different perspective because I'm coming from business and social science. And I've been in, in the rehab and physiotherapy industry for 10 years. So I'm also a clinician, right? And I think we need to have discussions at a higher level and not just argue uh, about very specific things, right? Mm -hmm. I think, I think I, this is one of the reasons I keep doing this podcast. I'll be honest with you. It, it's a lot of time and organization and thinking, and it's not something I get paid for, but wow, do I feel like I get a lot out of it. And just by talking with someone like you and so many other people, I love the nuanced discussions because not only does it keep me thinking and from so many different angles, but I feel like it's helpful to share these discussions with other people that maybe haven't thought about this back and forth either. Um, Sarah, is there anything else that kind of, I could talk with you, I, I, we, I know we have a time <laughs> limit today, and I could talk with you about this stuff for a long, long time. Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't talked about that's important for this conversation? I'm just thinking that one of the big themes from today's talk has been complexity, and just making sure that we are not too judgmental of ourselves and of others. Uh, you know, when people post something or say something or do something it, it's you know it's easy to make a quick judgment but you usually don't know all the full context behind it and you know maybe for the patients that are listening to give some empathy to their clinicians as well because it's it's hard for us too and and we we want to give you the best tools and and we really care I mean if you look at attitudes towards uh, best practice and towards uh, evidence-based practice, we're all for it. We want to do it. We care about it. We want to do the best thing to get you better. 
And, but sometimes the way it actually works out is it's, it's a lot messier than that. And we're trying our best and communicate, 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 you know, it's, I just got married. So maybe that's good uh, marriage advice too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Sarah, I, I thank you so much. And if there's ever anything that I can do to help you further spread the word of some of the work that you're doing and some of the learnings that you're taking away from it, I'm happy to do that. So thank you so much for your time and, and for everything that you're doing for our profession and for clients, really. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. And that's a wrap. If you enjoyed the show, can I ask you a big favor? Would you do one of three things for me? Number one, leave a review because we could all use a little positive feedback sometimes. Number two, download the episodes because it helps me see what people are interested in. Or number three, share it with somebody else because sharing is caring. Catch you next time.